Thank you for listening to Season 5, Episode 11 of Baseball Pitching the Fix, featuring baseball pitching motion expert Angel Borelli. As always, I am your host, Joe Janish, and today we have some good stuff coming up in Lessons from MLB. We're going to tell you not to always take lessons from MLB, and in our teaching moment, we will be talking about methods and drills for efficient arm angle at stride foot contact. That's going to include some drills and you're going to want to go to Angel's YouTube channel for the accompanying video so you can follow along. And in our final segment, the ninth inning, we will be talking again about pitch counts because it turns out there are different regulations for different states in this country. So we have a lot to go over today and let's get started. Angel, how are we doing here in the first week of September? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm excited about today's show. I am too. I'm very excited. And I, you know, we're going to kick it off with some lessons from MLB, or as I mentioned, lessons we should not take from MLB. That's how we're going to go roll it today. I noticed that we're, there are some really top pitchers in Major League Baseball that do some things that seem a little strange to me. For example, Aroldis Chapman apparently likes to warm up in the bullpen with a weighted ball. I know that Trevor Bauer uses both weighted balls and light balls and underweighted balls and all kinds of different things. And I know that there are a lot of pitchers out there and even coaches who are kind of copying things like this with the caveat that, well, Aroldis Chapman does this or Trevor Bauer does that or, you know, Justin Verlander does this or that. So I should do it, too. And I think that's something that, you know, we should really go over. I know we've talked about it in the past, but I, I feel like it's an important thing because, we try and take our cues from MLB, but that's not always the best idea. And Angel, maybe you can talk more to that because we want to make sure that pitchers are safe and pitching efficiently. Yes, uh, it's such an important topic because, um, you know, I get calls from all over the country every day by, from pitchers that are injured, college, high school level, sometimes minor leaguers. And so in doing an in-depth uh, conversation with them, it's interesting the things they ask and say. And the truth is, and this is never going to go away, that we do look to the major league pitchers who we should have tons of respect for. And we do look to what they do. And I don't blame pitchers for when they're looking for something to follow their favorite pitcher to find out what he does. When I'm on the field and I'm watching some of the younger teams play and pitch, you know, that are there having a practice and let's say they're from, they might be 10, 11, 12. When I look on the mound, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how 11 year old, I could tell he's been watching TV and picking up the habits of uh, major league pitchers. And the reason is, is because you see an 11 year old who's got more swag than he does pitching mechanics. And you know, he's been watching his favorite pitcher and what he does between innings. And it's really kind of funny, <laughs> right. but it's scary also at the same time. But you know, the truth is, is this is never going to go away. And you know what, we should respect our pitchers in the major leagues. Being someone who works with pitchers from the time they're 10 until they're into the major leagues, I know what they go through. They should be respected. But the other thing is everyone should know they're all individuals. They have different physiques. They have different heights. They have different uh, compositions. For example, everyone knows guys who can go in the gym and bench press and they're absolutely fine. They can bench press twice their body weight, three times their body weight. Some of us might go, oh, whoa, when I bench press, my shoulder hurts. 
It depends on the way you're built. It depends on the way you trained. It depends on your history. So, so much is specific to the pitcher himself. And even though I know we've touched on this topic before, I really want everyone to be very, very careful when you are trying to emulate either mechanics or trying to do what someone else is doing that it it sounds insane, but you do it anyway because it helped him. And I think the, the, the first cautionary note is if you find yourself searching for what is someone doing so that I can be better, that is your first sign that there is probably something personal to yourself that you're not addressing yet. And I would want to make sure that you address those personal things before you continue your search. So it's sort of like, let the fact that you're looking for that to be the moment you pull back and go, okay, let me put this to the side right now. And now let me go down my checklist. So first of all, if you're looking for something to make you throw harder, you better be sure that number one, your mechanics are really, really sound with the level of heat that you're throwing right now. So a person who's not a candidate for going out and chasing some velocity with some new program or some piece of equipment or something that's left of center is the person who has to be sure that they have already got efficient mechanics. If you're not throwing correctly, taking on a method to throw harder is only going to make something worse. It's not going to improve it. Plus, you won't get the results. You'll think, oh, why am I so weird? Why aren't I throwing harder? In fact, you run the risk of making something good bad, let alone something bad better. So be careful about that. Secondarily, you have to ask yourself, have I ever had an injury, a surgery, or do I currently have unusual soreness in places that I shouldn't be sore? Pitchers, if you're getting sore in your bicep, if you're getting tightness in your forearm, those two are the most dangerous places to have any effects from pitching. So if you have that, please don't run out and buy something to make you throw harder or to throw faster or that's going to change your grip or do whatever. You have to pay attention to who you are. So these are basic bases that you do have to cover. The other thing I want to say about major league pitchers, you have to remember most of these guys that are in there now, well, you know, it's just been in the last years that we've even said, okay, pitchers can lift weights, they can do this. They came up in a different era where we they didn't we didn't know as much as we know now. Plus they already have their jobs and they already are working to keep their job. It's intense to have that role. And I know what they go through because I work with them so intimately and I know what's on their minds. It's a lot of pressure. So when you see these guys doing things, you don't know what else they're doing in addition to it. You also don't know how much it's affecting them one way or another. I've seen people and seen practices that they say they use, and I can tell that it has not had a good effect on them because of the knowledge base I have. But I still respect them, of course, for what they're trying to do. But this is a new age, and my job is to educate. It's why you don't hear me slamming programs. I mean, there's programs out there that I think are crazy, 
But as a scientist, I look to say, well, why does everybody like them so much? And I try to take from it what they're trying to look for. And then I try to maybe design something that's in a different mode. So they, I actually can learn a lot from watching some crazy things that go on. At the same time, because it's a new age and because you're listening to this podcast, I always want to give you the information you need to make informed decisions. So if you are somebody who has trouble, you fatigue easily, you don't want to be doing something before you pitch that's going to fatigue you more. If you see a pitcher throwing 95, but he does something very weird with a weighted ball before he throws, well, that pitcher could be throwing 100 if he didn't throw the weighted ball. I mean, you know, you don't see uh, defensive linemen bench pressing before they go out for the game. In fact, they're pretty sure their chest isn't going to be sore for that game. So their last chest workout was days before. So start using your head in kind of a different way to think some things through. And remember, if you do decide to take on things that are of of an intensity nature, and I don't care what it is, whether it's intense in the gym, if it's intense on the field, if it's some crazy strap you're putting on your arm and you're hooking yourself up to the ceiling and hanging from it before you throw, you have got to recover from those things. You do not do them and then pitch. You do not do them and then pitch the next day usually because there is a recovery from them. If they do what they say they're going to do, which is to make you throw harder, then then if that's true, then you have to give that tissue recovery. And that's the plain and simple truth. So please, Be careful and go through a checklist of your personal strengths and weaknesses to see if you're even someone who should be looking for something special. Always cover the bases first before you go out to do something. That's great, Angel. And, you know, I I wanted us to reiterate this because there's always an article and you know, one of these uh, news outlets about how so-and-so pitcher is so successful this year and he owes it all to whatever it is, this routine that he did or this technique that he's doing or this workout that he's doing or this or that or this diet that he's doing. You know, he's he's eating nothing but grapefruits and now he's throwing 100 miles an hour. Well, that doesn't mean you should be going out and eating grapefruits. I like to call this the Juan Marichal rule. Juan Marichal was a pitcher in the 1960s for the Giants who's in the Hall of Fame and he's won more games than any other Dominican before Bartolo Colon, I think he's right on his tail. But anyway, Juan Marichal, when he went into his windup, he kicked his foot up so high, way up over his head. Like it looked like he was kicking the stars. And as a result, there's an entire generation of Dominican pitchers that were emulating what he did because they thought, well, that's why he's so good because he kicks his, hair, his foot all the way up in the air. But there weren't too many good Dominican pitchers that grew up at, other than Joaquin Andujar with that crazy kick. You know, all the other ones had more of a uh, more of a conventional leg kick. And I, you know, it's just that's what I like to say. Just run it through the Juan Marichal filter. And if it works for you, great. But really, you shouldn't just follow it just because some successful pitcher is, is doing it. Uh, make sure it works for you and make sure it's safe and make sure it's uh, helping you toward your end goal. So speaking about end goals in the teaching moment today, we are going to be talking about a very important topic which is finding the efficient arm angle at stride foot contact. And again, this is the part where you want to go to YouTube to Angel's 
YouTube page and check out the accompanying video because Angel is going to walk us through some methods and drills on how to get to that perfect angle for pitching. So Angel, you want to walk us through? I do. And I'm so excited, again, as I mentioned last week, over having this new visual medium with which to teach you. I have been so excited about the show because, again, I feel like the handcuffs have been taken off my wrists. This way I can give clarity about what I'm saying, but I get to share some of my favorite drills with you. And the, if I'm sharing something with you, it's because I've been doing it for years and years and I know it works. And so uh, go to uh, either, you know, when you get to the teaching moment, but there's going to be a slide that's going to pop up. And for you, Joe, go ahead and open up that first oh boy. visual Fun. that we have. Okay. So last week we talked about the late arm. The reason why I'm doing that this week is I got so many responses to this. It was so awesome. People were so thankful to kind of see it and to see what what it actually is supposed to look like. And what I want to do now is, even though we did, were discussing the late arm, which is an error in the arm position at stride foot contact. And if you want to know more about what we're talking about today, please be sure you listen to last week's podcast, because this is sort of like a class. We're building on information. So this arm position is, of course, has to be timed with the touchdown of the front foot, which with the pitcher can be a hopefully not a heel, but it can be the ball, the foot, a flat foot, depends on the, how the pitcher lands. So many coaches called and said, Angel, how do I get the guys to do this? How do we develop it? So the way that I teach is I teach with, because I'm a pitching motion instructor, not a pitching coach, a pitching, pitching motion instructor, I break down motions into pieces. And whenever there's a big motion with lots of pieces, I like to engineer the motion. And so what I do is I just have a way that I remove a lot of the stuff that causes trouble, like strides, like knee lifts, et cetera. Break it down into something simple first so the pitcher can always feel something. So in last week's photo, we saw Daniel who was um, actually uh, watching us in a stride foot landing position. This is a static position, and this is always how I position the pitcher. I tell him what to do. He lifts his arms up. I make sure his knee is over his ankle. I tell him for purposes of this drill to have the foot flat. I tell him for purposes of the drill to have the back leg be pulled long and straight. I tell him for purposes of this drill to have his glove arm be out straight, even though we know pitchers don't always reach out with the straight glove arm. But for teaching purposes, you make things as efficient and simple as possible because the purpose of these initial drills is to teach feel and to allow a pitcher to actually experience what would it feel like if my arm was in this position. So for example, if a pitcher's arm is late, or we call it, um, it's going into external rotation too soon. In other words, that forearm would be vertical. Daniel would have his hand facing the sky. It, that arm, forearm would be absolutely vertical. It, in either one of those cases, both of the times the shoulders are compromised. They're not really getting a chance to do what they do to accelerate the ball. When a pitcher starts throwing from this position here, he absolutely loves it because what he's getting is he's getting the feel of a full range of motion for a full pre-stretch uh, with the shoulder. So in the next slide, which is one of my other pitchers, 
And he is, and I put for all you guys out there that are lefties, I want to show you, I always think about you. So I put this up for lefties. So righties, you guys can now see how it feels to be a lefty when, when uh, everything's usually demonstrated as a righty. So what Chris is doing is he's taking that initial position that Daniel was in, and now he's throwing from it. And that is the, the first movement part of this drill. Now, what's he getting? He's getting that feeling of the full rotation of that shoulder in the position. Make sure they understand they're supposed to do the full motion, meaning the back leg comes up, it comes around in whatever format they do. Don't let them do a partial motion, just leaving that leg behind. So that's the next step. So first, you have them feel that position. Then you have them throw from this position. And notice as you're watching him, he is not coming out of the glove. He is not doing a knee lift. He's not moving in a stride position. He's able to concentrate on just the throw and the finish. So what he's doing is the tail end of the pitching motion. Now on the next picture, we're going to go back to Daniel again. And now he's doing the next step. Now he's coming out of the glove. Now he's doing what you just saw Chris doing. So we've got him positioning himself. He stops. Then he does the next drill. And when you're teaching this, always make him hit those spots. So we are hitting spots in the motion, just like we do around the plate. So again, notice He's only doing upper body. He's still not striding. Now, why is this? Because it's hard to teach too much at one time. And what I do is I take these drills. They never move on to the next level until they do this one perfectly. But I'm always paying attention to the pitcher himself. So he's getting whatever piece he's ready for. But when you start in this progression, then you have it simple. So now we've got the perfect placement and then the throw. Now what we're going to do is go to the next video. And what you're going to see is now there's two things you're going to notice. One is he's striding out, still stopping and throwing. So now he's added a slide step. Don't add the knee lift in. It will make you crazy. If you do, I'm warning you, have it be a slide step and throw. The other thing you're seeing is that he's actually on the mound doing this. Now, uh, at the end, I'm going to give you some of the transitions. And one of the things you'll see in my notes is for each one of these drills, always do them flat. And before you progress to the next one, do them downhill. That way the pitcher is feeling the change because there is a change downhill, particularly when you've added the leg. So now he's getting into the first position and then he throws. And that's the progression of how you teach this kind of, I, I'm going to call it the efficient arm action. There's no argument about it. It's efficient. Now open up the last slide just so for all you coaches, you can see what is the transition here. So we've got step one, just picture this. The arms were fixed, the legs were fixed, and then he just threw from that position. In step two, the arms start to move, but the legs haven't moved, and then he throws. And in step three, his arms are moving as his legs are sidestepping, so now he's working on the real timing, and then he throws. 
All three steps need to be performed flat. And then when they're ready, take it downhill. Don't go to the next step until you've tested them downhill. That's a very important piece. So what this does is it teaches the angles, but also the timing. Remember that arm is supposed to arrive into that perfect angle as the front foot touches down, which signals the end of that phase. What happens from here is the rotation. So make sure that you're seeing no rotation when they're actually doing these drills until they actually hit that spot and then they throw. And if you notice in some of the drills, the, the guys were uh, sort of stopping before they continued to throw. I always have them do it in pieces. And of course, the delay between making it fluid continues to change as they get better. And then eventually you say make it fluid. And you can do that with all the different levels. So that's the, uh, the progression for teaching this kind of arm action. What do you think, Joe? Uh, this is pretty awesome. I wish, uh, I wish I had something like this about 20 years ago. <laughs> so one of my questions is when you do the slide step and that front foot comes down, should the weight on the feet be kind of balanced or should there be more on the, the back or the front or how should that be? Well, no, they'll have more weight on the front leg because uh, they are transitioning. So the purpose of the stride is to move the, the body. Let me say it uh, in sort of scientific terms. You've got all your body weight over your one leg in the back. Now on this, they're just coming set, but picture a knee lift. All their weight is on that leg. The job of the stride is to move the weight off that leg and into the front leg so that now the pitcher can rotate over the front leg. So everything go, starts on the back leg, but you're moving into the front leg. That's why that front leg positioning is so important. I know we've talked about this on so many shows where the foot goes, etc. But that's such a great question. The work starts in the back leg, but it's going to all happen over the front leg. So yes, when they slide steps out, his weight should be more over it's the body will look like it's in the middle right but the weight will be in the front leg because the back leg has to turn the back hip if you have too much weight in it it's not going to be able to do that efficiently plus when you turn which is the next phase your left hip is acting as an axis of rotation so you need to be over that does that make sense yeah no that definitely makes sense mm -hmm. That's a really great question. That's about that's why it's hard when you're teaching singular things about the motion because really what you're asking is what happens next. And there is always a next. But always remember this to all the coaches. What you get at the beginning of the motion is what is going to affect the end of the motion. If you don't have the correct arm angle, you're going to be trying to make up for it during the motion. And motion doesn't occur that way very well. You have to kind of go through the spots and hit those spots if you're trying to make up for something. If you have a style of doing a stride that is so out of balance, your body is busy recovering from that imbalance. Let's say you are a uh, Juan Marichal and you pick, pick your leg way up and then you kick it way out and then you swing it way around. And when you land on your front foot, you fall all over the place. 
that's a body that in motion is also paying attention to trying to keep you from falling. You don't want your body doing that as it's trying to produce not just power, but to hit a spot over the plate. So doesn't that make sense, Joe? If you're wild going into your release point, your release point's going to be inconsistent. So the most important thing, and this is what you know, people do the work I do with, you know, when we teach what we call efficient mechanics. I mean, this is why I teach ABCs of pitching motion. And you've heard me say this before, put the bells and whistles on later, you go ahead and do that yourself. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to teach a Juan Marichal kick. I can't because science doesn't allow it. If I follow kinesiology, I know exactly what hip is flexing and what angle is doing what. And there's nowhere in there that it says you do that. That's a, that's a personalized way he does a specific movement. But efficient mechanics is straightforward and simple. And when you have efficiency, you have a better chance of consistency. And with pitching, I, it's great if you can do it one time. But if you can't repeat it, then you're not of any value because you can't get guys out. So this is an efficient way of doing things. And remember, one piece in the motion feeds the next piece. Right. So I have, I have another question because... Okay. I remember doing drills similar to this, more for uh, just getting the stride straight because sometimes pitchers stride closed or too open. So we would do some drills just to kind of start them out there and make sure their feet were lined up properly. Mm-hmm. And something that I, I remember always happening with, with certain pitchers is that we would get them in that position and then they would kind of like, instead of just throwing straight from that position, they would kind of cock back and then throw. And I noticed that the two pitchers in doing this drill, they, they go straight from yeah. from that angle where they're supposed to. So it, I guess you would want to make sure that they're going straight from there and not like trying to over twist any further or trying to you know, load up or anything like that. You want to keep an eye on that, I would imagine. Yeah. So actually go to, go to back to the video number, uh, go to the third thing, which is uh, Daniel throwing from the stride foot contact position. That's the one where we're adding the arms. What you're really saying, Joe, is why don't I have him doing a rocker step? Right. Sure. A ro- it's called a rocker movement. Whereas he's coming down and you will see pitchers do that. He'll, he'll shift his weight. They'll, ha- they'll be in this position. He'll shift his weight back and shift it forward. The reason why I don't have them do that is number one. Well, first of all, let me say something. When you've got them in this position, make sure their feet are correct. Okay, see, that's why they're in a stable throwing position and the foot's in line with the heel. The heels are lined up. So if a pitcher, once he starts slide stepping, can't get into that. But they've done these drills so much, but it's building in the correct placement. But what it's really building in is the way the hips have to be positioned because this is a hip positioning thing. The minute you start asking them to shift back and shift forward, you'll start to see imbalances and when they move backward, because the hips, depending on their tightness, and plus it's a very weird movement in the sense that we haven't taught them how to shift side to side without changing their hip joints. And that's a complicated, deep thing, but it's a reason why it's not in this because the only movement I want is the arms because I want them to feel the arms. The purpose of this is for them to feel the angle of the arm when their whole body is absolutely correct and silent. And also, I'm limiting the power. You see, and that's why I love your question. 
I don't want them to have oomph on the ball, which is why a pitcher does it. You'll see a pitcher go back and forth three times when they're playing catch with a drill that looks similar to this. They'll go one, two, three. That's teaching, that's giving them a little oomph on their throw. I don't want them to have that. I want them to feel one thing at a time. Plus, when I create drills, I try to keep them as close to the real motion as possible. A pitcher doesn't come up with his arms and go back and forth and then throw. It That actually can throw someone timing off. So remember, I'm teaching a timing drill. So I want everything to be per- perfect because I know that in two or three more steps, he's going to be moving his legs. And I don't want to have him have to He's moving his hips one way, and now he's moving his legs another. So I've simplified it. And I know, and you know, my my job is to give you coaches ideas. And of course, you're all geniuses in your own right. So take this information and run with it. But if you do add things to it, you might not get the same results. So if you have, so I suggest you do it my way first, and then let your brain Turn on the lights if you have some better ideas or ways to create other drills for yourself. Did that? Uh, does that make sense, Joe? Yeah, no, it definitely does. That's a great question because you know what? Somebody might not have even actually noticed that there isn't a rocker hip st- or a rocker, what we call the rocker movement in this. And they might just go out and just do it and not even realize that, no, there isn't one. So I love that you asked that question. That's why I love having you, Joe, because you're the baseball guy. <laughs> Well, I'm very astute. (laughs) You asked the questions that like 300 people were probably asking at the same time. So I love it. So two great questions. Anything else on this? Well, it's funny because usually when we do this, it it takes about three times as long for you to explain it. But, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. I think a video is worth about a hundred thousand plus they're getting your words. Anybody who has not yet checked out uh, Angel's YouTube channel for this episode, I really, I encourage you, you know, when you get home, when you get out of the car, you're done with your, your uh, gym workout or whatever it is you're doing while you're listening. I, I do encourage you to just check out the teaching moment lessons here because seeing it and after hearing Angel talk about it, and it's really very interesting and very helpful to see it like this. It's, and you'll know what I'm talking about once you, once you watch, I can't quite uh, convey what I'm what I'm describing here, but uh, this is pretty cool, Angel. This is good stuff. That is great. And listen, everybody, last week, in case you're defer- this is the first time tuning into this new thing I'm doing, last week, the topic came up of the late arm and the problems with it. And so if you're listening to this and saying to yourself, well, why should the arm be there? I'm not sure it should be there. There's a lot of pictures of the arm isn't there, which, by the way, is correct. Then you want to go to last week's show, go to YouTube, click on just the teaching moment, because in that segment, I didn't know I was going to be doing this segment. I talked about the problems with the laid arm, because guess what? So many pitchers have a laid arm. They always end up losing velocity. These are major league guys. They end up getting injured. It's a very, very common thing because a lot of, unless you're doing qualitative analysis, you might not know that the arm is actually not in an efficient position. And a lot of times those pitchers are having troubles in other parts and no one thinks to look at this. So if you're wanting to know why is this arm important, listen to last week's show and then you'll understand why I teach this drill. Because to me, it doesn't matter 
how late your arm is. It doesn't matter if it's early in external rotation. It doesn't matter if it's long, too long, too short. If the arm isn't right, it isn't right. If it's not in this angle, it's not in as good of an angle as it could be. So even though, for example, in the rules of biomechanics, that angle of the forearm could be a little bit different, why teach it? Why teach the range? Don't teach the wobble. Teach the consistent thing because you can believe that the pitcher himself will add a little bit one way or another. So we don't teach the deviation of a movement. We try to teach something really solid and then the pitcher can feel and go through what he needs to go through to learn it. And remember, teaching is the most important part of this. And for the pitcher, it's feeling it. Trust me, when they feel how the ball comes out of their hand, that very first drill will light their eyes up. Just watch. They will love it because they'll all say, wow, the ball just came out of my hand so easy. And that's the comment I've been getting for 20 some years. That's why I know these drills work. So, oh, I love this segment. I love having the visual. Being a teacher, of course, you could tell I'm excited. So awesome. Yeah, this is cool. I have a I have one more question, Angel. Okay. Um, I'm I'm assuming that most of the time you would do this drill throwing the fastball, but would you also recommend pitchers doing this with other pitches just in case they have for whatever reason a different kind of an arm angle when because they they should be starting here with every pitch, correct? Yes. Yeah, I teach everything with the fastball because uh, it's just like pitching coaches do. Everything comes off the fastball, and I don't want them thinking about anything else. And they're not thinking about anything else when they're doing these drills. Oh, and by the way, yes, you have them at a short distance. Don't have, you know, if, if he's not moving at all, you might not want him at 60 feet. You might want him closer. Coaches, those are the decisions you can make for yourself. But remember, he's not accelerating, you know, he's not accelerating too much with his body or the ball. So you don't want to have, you know, the distance be too long. But yeah, uh, I would say that um, there might be times when there's a particular pitch I'm working on, the, the you know, the pitcher comes to me and says, I can't do this. I can't do that. And I may have him do both pitches so I can see, let's say I'll take one of the middle styles of the drill, something a little more advanced. And I'll just see, is he doing something weird with his arm? You know, I'm looking at it for comparison, but that's actually a cool idea. When you think about it, you can use this for contrast to see, is there a problem when he just comes into position or when he lifts, comes out of the glove, does he come out of the glove differently knowing it's a different pitch? So that might be a time where you don't use the legs, you use just the arms and you say, wow, interesting. He did something completely different there. So that's a great question. You just gave me a good idea too. All right, good. Yeah, because I, I definitely, especially some younger some younger pitchers, actually pitchers of all ages, it really depends when their habit starts. I know a lot of pitchers may change the way the ball comes out of the glove for example for the curveball they might like hook their wrist or something crazy when they come out of the glove so it might be a good idea just to in case that might be an issue it could be a way to fix it all right so i think we're closed on that segment for the moment and i think we should go to the ninth inning can i pull you out of the bullpen angel because yes you can and boy is this is this a change in my energy because i'm <laughs> so excited about this last segment and this next segment i am so concerned and upset yeah so right after the last show so in the last show all i was is talking about an editorial where a high school coach had written in 
and he was complaining that they had a limit of so many pitches and it was the high school rules and the limit wasn't enough and there were too many days of rest and he was complaining and I think I said the number 75 and he was like with 75 uh, pitches, you have to have so many days of rest. And he was thinking it was too many days of rest. So there was a coach complaining and he was wishing that they needed less rest, which I thought was an interesting thing that all of a sudden the health of the arm wasn't really the concern. So that show wasn't, I, I don't think it was published for more than two hours. I started getting so many letters from coaches and one of them sent me all of the pitch count rules for every state in the country for the high school. And when I saw it, I was so upset. And of course, they were calling me, thanking me for the addressing this, talk, asking questions about it specifically. But when I saw it, it scared me. And it scared me because the rules in every state are so different. Now, I know states have different rules about what age you can drink. And we, every state has different rules about, uh, let's say, uh, the limit on alcohol in the blood. So we know that states do ha have autonomy on certain rules. But when I'm looking at a sport like baseball, and I have followed USA Baseball Recovery Guidelines since 1995. And for everyone, you can go to my website at gymscience.com for free and download the 1995 version, which just got revised, I think, a year ago. But it's still the same range. And by the way, even though they changed it where they gave a few extra pitches in some of the ranges... I never changed mine because my guys have been raised on this and they get, for example, one day of recovery up to 39 pitches. So if I told him all of a sudden he could throw 45 pitches, he would look at me really crazy because for 10 years he's been getting, if he goes beyond 39, he's got to have two days. So if I say, oh, you can go to 45 now and you still only need one day, He's not going to look at me and like that. Plus, I would feel stupid because I've been working with this recovery guideline. And guess what? I have a pretty good record and I've seen it work. When something works and it keeps and it's in this, the, the direction of health, I don't want to take a chance. So I left him with the early guidelines. They're not that much different than the new ones. But the new ones are a little bit more, uh, mine is a little like by conservative by three or four pitches. But I looked at these guidelines and it scared me. So for you coaches out there, I know you have to follow them. But the way that you shouldn't follow them, and my recommendation is with the outside, not the limit on pitches, but the number of recovery days that they're giving per the pitches. And so let me get more specific here. So in the USA Baseball guidelines that I follow, once you get to 80 pitches, you have to have four days of recovery. So if you throw 79, you can go up to 79 and including 79 and it's three days. But once you're in the 80 to 100, whatever, you have to have four days of recovery. Why is that? Because tissue starts to change as you start to heat it up more and the tissue starts to change and muscles change and mechanics change. 
And we know that once a pitcher gets into the 70s, things start to happen. So way back when the guidelines were designed by the geniuses who designed them, it was three days of recovery, you know, if you're at up to 79, it's actually between 60 and 79, and then four days after you hit, the minute you hit 80, you're in a four-day recovery, and then that's the same for whatever the pitches are. There is not one state that is requiring, except Kansas, 76 to 105, they're going four days. Good for them. Maryland, 76 plus four days. Mm, They could go to 79. They could actually go to 80. Missouri, they are actually also doing that. But other than that, the schools are allowing three days of recovery for a hundred some pitches. And I'm not seeing, I'm seeing a few more states here. Oklahoma, 101 you go to four. They let you go to 100 for three days of recovery. So while all these numbers I know can be confusing trying to remember them, what I want you to do is per each state. Oh, and by the way, I have to say this. There's two states, and I'm not going to, I'm not talking about California. There's two states that I get the most out-of-town visitors from. And these are people who have injuries that are devastating enough to where they communicate with me, they have me analyze mechanics, they end up flying in. And there's two states that are the most predominant for that. Both of those states have the same guidelines. They let you go up to 110 pitches and get only three days of rest. And I find that interesting. Okay, so here's what I'm scared about. Forget all the numbers. Here's the concept. I'm scared about everyone thinking that a shoulder in California is different than a shoulder in New York or that an elbow in Texas is different than one in Nevada. This is very scary to me. Also, when I look at this, coaches don't get upset with me, but it looks like somebody who made these guidelines up was thinking a little maybe more about baseball and not enough about the pitcher or trying to come up with something, somebody who didn't really know how to, I mean, there is a way to help the coach and the pitcher at the same time. But guess what, guys? If you as a coach are having trouble with your rotation because of pitch counts or recoveries, think of the trouble you have when three of your guys are down. So here's the thing that's scary to me. And all you coaches out there, I know you give your hearts and soul to what you do. And I know that you have to follow guidelines. And I'd like you to follow them on the things that make sense to you. But to break them and go in the direction of disservice to the pitcher is dangerous. And I don't think any of you are doing that. But I'm asking you to be a little more conservative in some ways, but also to add a little breath of fresh air maybe to what you're doing. So what I want coaches to do is I want you to download the baseball guidelines. I want you to put them next to the guidelines for your state. And I want you to see that your guys that are going over 80 pitches could possibly not be getting enough recovery. And if your brain says, well, listen, 
I think it's okay if he goes 85 or 88 pitches and he's on three days. Okay, but I want you to ask yourself if it makes sense that he should go 110 pitches on three days. I only want to ask you to visit the guidelines as comparison and see if there isn't a little extra thing that you might want to insert. You might want to take the very last range and cut it and then give yourself that ability to go into a little more recovery for the guys that are throwing high pitch counts. Now, guess what's going to happen? So I want you to do that. Now, the other thing I want you to do is, let's say you don't want to do that. Let's say you go, she's crazy. I want to follow these guidelines. I just figured out how to do it. It seems to work. Okay. I want you to pay careful attention. Maybe track this in one of your little notebooks. When you're giving a 106-pitch count pitcher three days off and he comes back and does either a bullpen at the end of that or a game, I want you to start tracking his performances because there's no way that that arm is going to come back 100%. So he can get away with it one time, two times, but three is the magic number. When the body does something at least three times that's not good for it, it'll start to break down. And I want you to be all research scientists and see if you see that happening. And if you do, go back to the USA guidelines, see where their cutoff is, make some decisions about it. So you would never be breaking an, uh, or a high school rule in the favor, in the sense of breaking the rule in a bad way. You would be expanding it in a good way. So there'd be, you would not be getting into any trouble at all, but you would be doing something beneficial. But I want you all to think about both these things and to take that information and, and um, put your thinking cap on, take a look at it. It's really scary to me. And California, by the way, of course, where I'm at, is strange because it's saying, Anything over 76 is three days. So it's strange because that number could actually go to 79. But what really bothers me is they have a 75 pitch count for only two days recovery. So guess what USA says? 40 to 59 is two days of recovery. They're saying 51 to 75 is two days recovery. The difference in 59 and 75 is too much for my brain to wrap itself around because 16 pitches difference. I mean, coaches, think about this. When you've got a pitcher in a bullpen and you're building his pitch count or whatever, and you look at him and you say, hey, how many more pitches can you do? Usually they're going to go, let's say they're getting towards the end, two, three, four. Oh, yeah, I might be good for seven more because they know when their arms are done. The difference in a 5 and 10 and 15 additional pitches is a lot of pitches to somebody who's on the edge of almost being done with their bullpen or not. I've never heard someone who's almost done saying, oh, yeah, I can go 25 more. So this difference by 15 pitches is insane. And so believe me, I'm worried about my California coaches right now. I just want to highlight these things 
And I want all of you to think about it carefully. And I want you to download those guidelines and be brave enough to just compare and just scratch your head and wonder why all of a sudden is this range changing so much? And I can tell you from doing nothing but working with this for 28 years that these pitch count guidelines are out of whack. And if any of you have connections to the board, I don't know what board put these together or what they were thinking, but what they did is they just threw aside the USA Baseball Recovery Guidelines. Even the guidelines when they revised them, the USA, they didn't go this far out to the uh, to the left of center. So Coaches, the most important thing to keeping your pitcher safe is recovery. The thing that is the most insulting about these high school rules here is the recovery. It's got me concerned. So I want, I'm calling on all of you, put on your thinking caps, see what you think, start paying attention, and maybe, maybe something can change in the near future with bringing this more into uh, a healthy light. Pitching injuries are on the increase, not on the decrease. So I think this is something we need to be sensitive about. Yeah, Angel, I agree. That's, uh, I, I looked at some of the uh, guidelines state by state, and I was astonished to see so much of a difference. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too political here, but, you know, in general, I am kind of for the idea of states making their own rules for governing laws. But as you said, when it comes to, sports and keeping people safe and you know like you said the arm in california is the same as the arm in texas or louisiana or new jersey or wherever it is i mean even if you're up in thin air i mean it's still a pitch is still a pitch i like to compare this to when there used to be um like you said different drunk driving laws in different states just because you are allowed by your state to have a, a fifth drink in order to drive doesn't mean you should it might not be such a good idea even even though the law allows you to be a little woozy when you get behind the wheel that doesn't mean you should get woozy and go behind the wheel really you know you should use some you know some some sensibility and you know understand these rules came from science these the the, the rules that that we're going to put a link to in in the show notes we're going to we're going to show you the um the the guidelines the usa baseball guidelines follow those and it's going to be tough if you're in one of those states that's a little more liberal with the uh, with the recovery and, and the pitch counts. And it's going to be, you're going to have to have some difficult conversations with some parents who are very upset if their, their uh, son is taken out or their son is not put on a mound two days later, even though the, the state says you can. But you've got you've to be the coach. You've got to be the adult in the room and say, well, you know what? I wouldn't give your kid you know, two more beers and send them out behind the wheel. It's a, it's, it's a similar situation. So exactly. you, know, you got to look out for the kids. Yes. And uh, I'm so glad you brought up the drinking analogy because I think of it all the time as, uh, as almost a sound analogy. So here's the analogy with drinking that I'm going to give. So a, let's say a, a town or a state says, we've got too many DUIs. We've got, you know, we're having a thousand DUIs every month. What are we going to do? Oh, I know. Let's raise the limit that we call illegal and then we'll lower the number of DUIs we have. Yeah, that's one way to do it. Do you see what yeah, I'm saying? That's one way. It's, <laughs> it's, that is what I thought of when I looked at this. And here's the other thing. I know I'm speaking to a predominantly male audience. So 
in the world of mechanics and in the world of building houses and things, we have stress rates. For example, in, in the gym, you've seen people squatting with an Olympic bar. There are stress rates for those bars. So when I used to design gyms way back. So an Olympic lifting gym where, you know, you're going to have a guy who might have four, five, six, seven hundred pounds, that Olympic bar has a higher stress rate. So when they buy it, even though it's still going to weigh 45 pounds, every Olympic bar weighs 45 pounds, the metal and the things they use for it are of a certain stress. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a gym and you're watching a defensive end <laughs> or an offensive linebacker uh, training and the bar's bending because they've got so many plates. Well, he's using the wrong stress bar. That gym didn't have a strong enough bar. When you see that happening, that's because that metal, if something with wood, the whole world is made of things where we are reliant upon stress levels being appropriate for your fender on your car. So if someone hits you, maybe it doesn't kill you, et cetera, et cetera. The arm, the tissue, the muscles, and the bones have the same kind of stress ratings. In fact, there are biomechanists. That's all they do. They look at that. They take cadavers. They look at ligaments. This is how. This is why when you read uh, articles on the UCL, it'll say, oh, the ligament, the UCL can only handle so much stress, and the stress level of a pitch is higher than that, so we need the muscles to help it. You'll see that exact wording only more precise. So when you are watching your son on the mound and he's thrown 100 pitches or 106 pitches or 110, whatever the max is, and he's not going to get recovery from that, his stress rate was pushed. And when he gets back on the mound, he has not recovered to his full capacity. So you're literally should in your mind be seeing a bar bending something melting, because that's exactly what's happening. And that is what's happening, Joe. It's, it's you know, we're not just talking about pitch counts. We're talking about re tissue recovery and performance and muscles that are being asked to do a specific thing. So coaches, please help me on this. Please get out there. Take a look at this. Give me your feedback. Uh, let's get on this and let's take a look at it. And if you are in the camp where you kind of like this, please do the research of following it. I'm curious to see if we're going to get the same performance level out of pitchers that are throwing 110 pitches and only getting three days off. Because my guys that do that, they get four and they need All every right. day of it. And on that note, we have completed episode 11 and i think we got a whole lot done this this week i know yes i'm very happy i'm very happy so as always uh, i'm going to say one more time check out angel's youtube channel so you can follow along with the teaching moment we're going to have the link in the show notes if you want to learn more about angel go to her website gymscience.com and if you have any questions you can send her an email angel at gymscience.com course we are always welcome to hear your questions your feedback anything guys we we like to hear from you we really like the feedback and um with that we should be back in about two weeks and in the meantime we wish you safe and effective performance on the pitching mound